0: Are you providing value to your client that you have a fiduciary responsibility? Absolutely. You're working really hard to make them successful, and you're participating in the success that you're creating. And there's nothing wrong with that.
1: Welcome Closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season three on profit. I'm your host Jordan Wayla and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actionable insights to help you grow your property management empire. Whether you manage hundred units or a thousand, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won
0: before it's ever fought. Think about it.
1: Today, I'm talking with Denny Miller, the broker and co-founder of Zenith Property Management, which specializes in managing single-family homes in and around Vancouver, Washington. I've known Danny for maybe around three years, been into his office a couple of times. Denny is sharp. He's a hustler. And we're going to kind of dig into the weeds of the intentional playbook that he is running within this Vancouver market. Welcome to the show, Danny. Hey, Jordan. It's great to see you this morning. Thanks again for uh, everything that you're doing in the
0: industry. I really enjoy your podcast. You have some great guests. And you're bringing a tremendous amount of value to the industry. So thanks for all you're doing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, to have a good podcast, I have to have smart people on the show like you. So let's kind of talk about how you got into the business. The path leading up kind of influences the approach that you take. What's your background before getting into property management?
0: So I'm a lifetime sales guy. Uh, We talked a little bit before the show started. Uh, I was in the auto industry for uh, about 24 years and uh, got tired of being tied to the ball and chain and was always very, very interested in real estate. So in 2001, uh, I started buying some properties. We started to fix and resell. I did lease options. I did a lot of creative stuff. The item that we really got into doing was pre-foreclosures. So what we were doing is we were buying houses. This was before the whole foreclosure crash. Uh, we were buying houses, fixing, reselling, holding on to some of them, selling some of them with creative terms, and we just had a great business model doing that from 2002 all the way up until the music stopped in 2008. Uh, during that period of time, we probably bought, fixed, flipped about 200 houses. We had one year that we uh, closed on over 40 transactions on the sales side, and we had some rentals. We were always interested in in uh, building some wealth through owning rentals. However, we were not really prepared for the amount of the decline in the market that took place in 2008. We had a lot of properties in cash flow. And as a result, we were funding our operations with sales. And of course, after uh, Merrill Lynch went down, uh, you couldn't sell anything. And so the music had stopped and there was no chair for us to sit down in. And we realized our business model was dead and watched the market go down. We thought, well, heck, we love real estate. How are we going to stay in the game? So we decided that we would go ahead and start uh, property management. Uh, Started out by going to a NARPA meeting. This was before we had any fee managed properties at all. And in uh, the summer of 2009, uh, we launched Zenith. Uh, in July, so it was just about exactly nine years ago. Earlier this month, that we collected our first fee in July of 2009. Zenith made $150, and from then we grew the business organically. So it just wasn't enticing in 2001 to 2008 to think about uh, collecting a uh, hundred dollars a month or $150 a month or whatever to manage a property. I mean, we were going to the title company and picking up five-digit checks. It seemed like it was chunk change. We learned very quickly about the value of recurring income. And so from being really a couple million dollars in debt, uh, we bootstrapped Zenith from uh, from those very, very humble and ragged beginnings uh, to uh, today we manage about 400 units. Uh, We have uh, on our staff about eight full-time people plus a couple, two or three real estate people. And then my wife and I uh, manage the business.
1: And what else are you doing? You still got the brokerage piece?
0: Yes, we do. Um, and it was interesting when we were buying and selling properties. Neither one of my wife and I were licensed. Uh, we we had a brokerage. We had a we were using a brokerage company uh, to sell our properties so that we could keep some of the commissions in, in house. But neither one of us were licensed. Really, from the time that we started Zenith. I did not focus on real estate sales. So it wasn't until the market really started to recover and a number of our reluctant landlords were interested in uh, selling their properties that we really started to build a sales component to our business. Well, last year was probably our best year for real estate sales. It was represented about 25% of our gross income. Uh, This year, it will probably come in a little closer to 20%, which is a a good split as far as I'm concerned. Uh, We want property management to be the primary driver, uh, that recurring income, and there's just so many dovetails that we get out of property management to not keep the focus on property management.
1: For those of you listening at home, I want to get real clear on why I wanted to have Denny on this show. Everybody that comes on the show has something to contribute, something to add, something from their background, from their personal experience. But for me, there has to be a modicum of understanding of what is distinct about any guest. And for Denny, who is a participant in the property management benchmarking study that we performed recently, there was one thing that really stood out about Denny's business. And that specifically was the fact that you have a very clear focus on the type of client that you are attracting, and that is reflected in your overall unit economics for the the revenue that you're able to drive from those customers. It's just a lot higher than for a lot of other businesses. And as a result of that, you have a lot of flexibility and a lot of options that people don't. For example, when people are tempted by or dabble in the low income segment and go down that path, they're making a lot of future decisions as a result of the flexibility that they have based on just the unit economics on a per door basis. So, I'd love to hear from you. How did you decide positioning-wise the market segment that you wanted to go after? How long did it take being into business before you got really clear and intentional on that? Well, actually, it started
0: right in the beginning. I've never been a, a cheap sell kind of a guy. I mean, I always try to figure out how we could maximize the revenue. And obviously, you have to provide value. I mean, if you're selling a house, you, mean you have to give it the window dressing. You have to make it attractive. You have to have a, a, a great marketing piece. The interesting thing was, I told you about joining NARPM before we got our first fee-managed client. And at that first NARPM conference in Portland in uh, April of 2009, we were introduced to a property manager who had a company here in Vancouver that was putting it up for sale. And she'd been in business about 20 years. She had 120 units, which didn't seem like very many units to us. For those twenty years, we engaged in a discussion, and we hired a consultant to evaluate the business. And we went out and looked at it. And in the previous uh, six months or so, she'd written off over ten thousand dollars in late fees. We looked at the average rent. We looked at the fee income. I mean, here's one hundred twenty units, and she was grossing, you know, maybe about twelve thousand dollars a month. And it was a rundown portfolio. Of uh, crappy properties and owners that she was actually lending money to to buy appliances and this kind of thing, we just said we don't want to be that company. We are not going to be that company. We will establish our own clientele. And in the beginning, in the first year or two, I mean. Yeah, we, we took everything. I mean, we, and we took a couple of bad clients. I mean, we, we took a we took a guy. Our our number two client uh, had uh, 29 units, which we thought, wow, this is great. But I mean, he was just a hard guy, a really hard guy, cheap guy, low end properties, and that relationship lasted, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. Now we learned a lot from that, but we learned what we didn't want to do. So we got very very focused on the upper end of the single family market. We specifically were looking for nicer properties, nicer neighborhoods. We manage a lot of properties in a couple of the suburban areas around Vancouver, Washington, uh, Camas, the Salmon Creek area. These are these are great neighborhoods. And what we learned is there's actually really a demand for higher end rental units. If your business model, if your fee model is based on a percentage, if it's 10 uh, and the unit rents for $1,000 a month, I mean, that's $100 you're getting to manage it. If it rents for $2,500, that's $250. That's two and a half times the revenue. So we've got really focused on just getting the nicer properties. The other thing is I talked to a tremendous number of people when we crafted our original management agreement and we put a number of ancillary fees in there and kind of tested that over time and of course our management agreement has evolved but we're really focused on the revenue model. So the golden objective is to is to have our monthly management fee be less than 50% of the total revenue stream. So, for example, if you have a a property that is kicking off uh, $1,500 or $2,000 a year in monthly management fees, then we want to be looking for sources of income where we can get more than $1,500 or more than $2,000 a year in other fees. And if you're you're bumping along and you're getting uh, maybe a a small percentage, 25% of your income from ancillary fees, lease-up fees, that sort of thing... um, And you could double that and put that on the bottom lines and have that in your business to hire better people, to be able to seize other opportunities. And probably one of the most key things about making sure that you're going for some kind of a fee maximization model is because that revenue will allow you to be able to make some mistakes. I mean, quite frankly, from the place that we started our business, uh, if we we didn't have a pretty strong fee model, I don't know if we would have made it. I mean, I don't know if we would have survived those first three or four or five years. And quite frankly, right now, I mean, it's given us the latitude to be able to have a really great office, to hire really great people, to pay really great wages, to make some mistakes, uh, and to make it a pretty rewarding business. It's, it's allowed me to have enough good quality people around me so that I actually have the time to work on the business rather than being involved in any of the day-to-day functions, which I really have very little to do with at this point in time.
1: I, I love that. So, it really, the way I think about it is just that it's a different constraint to solve for. You could solve for the constraint of figuring out how to run a business at $100 bucks a door, but is that is that a worthwhile problem, to try? a constraint to try and solve for? You could solve for it by having a really cheap lifestyle, right? You basically have a job where you need to leave, live very inexpensively and I'm sure you can make that work. You know, I should caveat that. I've seen at least one instance where there was a company making good margins at a revenue per door below $100, but the owner had basically completely pushed himself out of the business and ran an incredibly tight and lean operation. By and large, you could either solve for that constraint or you could solve for the constraint of figuring out how to make more money. Your mindset, your attitude, what you bring to the table is largely deterministic in which of those two problems you choose to solve for. In your case, you have a sales background. You mentioned that the card dealership was where you can initially cut your teeth in a sales environment. You worked in the F&I, finance and insurance department. Can you just kind of walk me through some of the lessons that you took through from that specific experience of understanding what financial levers and and fee optimization could look like in that context and how it potentially influenced your thinking here?
0: Well, exactly. I mean, we sold all kinds of things. I mean, the extended warranties, the sealant packages, the undercoat. I mean, there was so many products and services that were offered in that office. And and quite frankly, the sum of those, those sales in many, many, many cases exceeded the revenue that the dealer got for the actual sale of the car. Uh, so it was a pretty natural thing for me to think about in terms of what my background and experience was. And and the other part about this, I mean, it's not just slapping a bunch of fees on your clients and your clients okay, you, you really have to understand the value of each and everything that you're doing. And and that really segues into the other thing that we've gotten very focused on, and that's the metrics, the measuring everything, days of vacancy, and, uh, what of uh, lease, uh, rates, uh, and what we're doing in terms of year-over-year new lease rental rates, and what we're doing in terms of lease renewals, all of the really value-added propositions. If you have a very solid value proposition that is logical, that's sensible, that makes sense to a professional investor where you can show how it is that you're going to make them more money. I mean, you're not just going to them to say, hey, you know what? Uh, We're just better than the competitors out there. Well, how are you better? Well, we just are. I mean, look at our people in our office and, you know. And we care more. We've been around for a long time. We're number we one. We answer the phone. You know, we care more. Yeah, we've been around for a long time. You know, we're smart. You know, uh, we treat the tenants nice, all that kind of thing. If you can show them in black and white what your numbers are, uh, this was another gift of Narpa is uh, at the very, very first owner broker that we went to, and we've been to every single one of them, uh, and in the Orleans, that horrible casino that they had the first one, uh, there was uh, uh, some representatives from Zellman and Associates there, and they were looking for data from the single-family market. They were Their primary uh, product is intellectual property that they've been collecting for years and years for the financial industry and the multifamily industry. And now, all at once, because of all these foreclosures, there was no data out there in the single-family market. And they needed to be able to collect the data. So they came to NARPM, and they said, you want to be our research partner? You'd be our research partner. Provide us the, your personal business stats on a monthly basis. We'll share our data with you. Now, you can't share it with anybody else because that's our intellectual property, but you can at least see what's going on in the market. And We jumped right in. The interesting thing that we learned was there were questions that were on the survey every single month. Those were the questions that were important to these professional investors, the Goldman Sachs, the Blackstones, all these people who were buying these massive amounts of foreclosures, and we just got really good at measuring those numbers. And we had a history of what those numbers were inside our company. And then we started to use that information to talk to our clients about how it was that we were producing these kinds of results and how we compared to the rest of the data that Zellman was collecting out there. And we were better. We were better uh, than what the rest of the industry was producing. And that became a very easy sell. The fees then became really a secondary question. I mean, you know, you have a really great presentation when you go through a a conversation with a potential client. And first of all, you have to listen to where it is that they're hurting because there's no reason to present something to them that really doesn't matter. I mean, really the, uh, all clients are looking for one of three things or either looking for a hassle free experience, uh, a maximum ROI, or somebody that's going to help them mitigate risk. and, and every single thing. And it's, it's, uh, uh, one of those three is going to be the strongest. Then you can pitch according to that. But right now in this market, we're seeing more and more professional investors, and the ROI is really important. So, how can you prove to me that you're getting a better, better ROI? And if you're getting me a better ROI, why do I care if you're, if you're participating in the success that you're producing for that portfolio? That's really how the pitch works with a potential client and how the value adds of the different fees that you charge really become kind of a non-issue.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's great. I love it. So, Lean into the value, the quantified, demonstrable value, not the theoretical value, not the only the value that you know about, but you haven't demonstrated. I love the notion of unarticulated, unacknowledged value as undelivered value. This whole notion of, if you build it, they will come. If I know in my heart of heart that I'm great, I know in my heart of heart that the service is great, well, then the, the consumer is just going to intuit that, right? The, they're somehow just going to see it. But... We're selling, in general, we're selling to folks that have a tenth, one percent of the potential buying criteria in terms of knowledge about the good or service that we do. Now, in some cases, you have a very educated investor, but by and large, the consumer looks at the transaction completely differently. You know, the pipe or the hole of the lens that we're looking through is like this. They're looking through it like that. And if you're focused on these periphery things that are outside of that lens, then you're doing it wrong and you're not really going to be influencing things that can actually influence the outcome of the transaction. So I love how you're thinking about the overall transaction. Let's lean into the conversation regarding fee maximization, where some people get uncomfortable. And that's the notion that it's money grubbing. It's not in alignment with the best interest of the tenant or the owner, et cetera. How do you defend Fees, in the, purely in the sense of, you know, the quasi-moral sense of really adding value and not just being exploited. How, how do you approach that objection? Well, I'll give you a really good example. We
0: charge a, a flat fee on a, on a lease renewal or a percentage of the annual increase. That uh, we're able to get for the owner. So, for example, if uh, if the rent is uh, nineteen hundred and we move it to two thousand dollars on a renewal, which is a five or six percent increase, and in our market, in, in a lot of markets around the country, a five or six percent is pretty typical of what we've seen in the last few years in terms of rent increases. In fact, in our market, it's probably been higher than that in in uh, a couple of the preceding years. You know, you can take the easy route as a property manager, as a portfolio manager, to send a renewal. We know that it's in our client's best interest to keep the tenant on a lease. We don't have that unexpected vacancy, that unplanned vacancy. Not only that, we can put a provision in the lease agreement where if the tenant has to leave early for some particular reason, they have a lease break fee that defends you know, the, the vacancy that the client didn't start with. So you could take the easy road. I mean, a lot of uh, tenants might give you some pushback and you said, okay, you, congratulations. You had a great year in the property. You can stay another year. And by, by the way, your rent's going up $100 a month. Well, that conversation, uh, if there's some pushback, could say, oh, well, okay, all right. You know, I know my client doesn't want a vacancy. All right, we'll just renew you for the $1,900. Well, you know, there's some energy involved in making sure that you explain, you know, what's going to be involved in looking for another property, the value that your firm is providing in terms of the convenience of the services and you, and you have to have a good service proposition to the tenants as well. And as a result, you made the client $1200. Well, if you get say a third of that or a fourth of that, or 40% of that. I mean, that's a three or $400 fee that you can get where you really did add value for your client. And by putting a provision in the lease, where if the lease break fee is two months, now you've got a tenant who's going to have moving expenses, who's moving out. We don't collect the last month's rent up front. So they got to pay the last month's rent. They've got to go ahead and wait for their security deposit refund if they're going to have one, if they're taking care of the property. And you're collecting a two-month rental lease break fee. Well, there's a lot of work involved in collecting that money. And so we defend our owner's interest by giving them one of those months because we know that we can get the property leased in less than a month. Uh, we can get it leased probably pretty quickly. And for the, you know, the reward of uh, collecting uh, that lease break fee for the owner, we get 50% of it. And you know those, those kinds of fees can really add up. And are you providing value to your client that you have a fiduciary responsibility? Absolutely. But you're, you're working really hard to make them successful. And you're participating in the success that you're creating. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we like to view our client relationships as partnerships. And we want to make our clients successful. Uh, And I'll I'll give you another really good example. We just took on a client with 62 units. uh, Great client, way below market. There's primarily multifamily. Well, they are all multifamily. And uh, we estimate that they're probably 20 to 30% below market on their rents. And this is a rent roll that right now is uh, in the 50-some thousand, and it really should be 80,000. So, if we can go ahead and increase the rent roll by, take a low number, $20,000 a month in the next year and a half, that's $240,000 on an annual basis. You use a current cap rate of 5 or 6%. We've just made that asset in less than 2 years worth another $3 million or more to that client. Now, is that creating value? Do we have a right to participate in the success?
1: Uh, that we're creating for that
0: client? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Should should you work for free? You can. You can either do that in your business or you can do it in private time and call it charity. In my mind, it's good to separate those two and just be clear on, on what you're doing and what moment. So my view is that you want to be able to say yes to the client when they're asking you to do something that's, you know, rational within a reasonable scope of services and it's going to make you more money. You want to be able to say yes, and aligning that activity to making money is the easiest way to actually be able to say that as opposed to capping yourself by having low fees and really having to focus instead on saying, no, no, I can't do that. No, I can't do that. Or yes, I can do it, but it's going to take me a really long time. It's really just greasing the wheels and the skids for you to have more margin in your life and in your operations. And ultimately, the higher touch approach that you're taking, you can deliver to the higher touch clients that are presumably expecting that. So really, it's a virtuous circle, as I guess what I would say.
0: Right. Well, yeah. And another really good example is... uh, Say annual inspections, and you know clients will ask, "Well, do you you know how often do you inspect the property?" Well, it should be inspected at least annually. I mean, a thorough inspection on the inside. And uh, if the, if they're if they're thinking about coming over from another property management company, will they do inspections? Well, they say they do, uh, but you know my property was ruined after the tenant was there three years. Well, are they charging you for inspections? Uh, well, no, no. Well, then I'm saying they didn't do them. Okay. OK, because they're not providing an inspection report. These people that are run ragged because they're on a low revenue model are just not going to have time to get to the work that really needs to be done unless there's a revenue reason to do it, because you're just stretched too thin.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk about the counterpoint of this. The counterpoint to me, in my mind, is that long term fee maximization and lowering your costs through outsourcing doesn't seem like a viable business model. Near-term, it's what needs to be done for business optimization. But in terms of that long-term visionary approach, you think about the Amazons of the world where Jeff Bezos has stated that he's willing to trade margin for market share in the near term to be able to have long-term victory. That's a hyperbolic overstatement that I don't think is relevant to our context. But what I do think is that the, the profit maximization for the purpose purely of profit maximization is a little bit short-sighted. And I think that's where some people get hung up. It feels right. like it's it's all about the money, it's all about the dollar. No, the truth is, Optimizing for profit gives you freedom to do whatever you want. And if you're smart, you're going to do something useful with that profit. Maybe that means going on, taking your family on a vacation. Maybe that means investing in an IRA. Maybe that means reinvesting back into the business now that you have the freedom, and the margin to do so. So Denny, my question for you is, when you think about big picture strategy at the highest level for the business, how would you describe the strategic playbook that you're trying to run at Zenith? Well, you know, you bring up a really good point, which I think is a great segue into
0: concerns that a lot of people have in our industry, and you know, Amazon is a great example of what's happening to retailers, and that is that uh, uh, products and services are being commoditized, okay, and and margins are being squeezed, and is the big is the big uh, national company coming into my town, and are they going to crush me? Uh, and that's a that's a really legitimate. Concern. And, you know, my answer to that and our our bigger long term strategy is to insulate ourselves from commoditization through making our business a relationship business. OK, I mean, you can you can just be cranking out widgets, you know, or you can be building relationships. Relationships are are insulated from commoditization. So one of the tools that, that I learned and that we're, we're working on has been through uh, my involvement with Strategic Coach. And uh, one of the one of the things in Strategic Coach, one of the tools is this uh, what they call this R factor question and uh, this DOS conversation. So, the R factor question is a relationship question which says, if we were going three years out in the future and you will have accomplished everything that you would have want to accomplish, what would have had to have happened? And you're starting the conversation with a client that is much deeper than, you know, uh, how fast can you get my property rented and what are your fees? it's it's what are your goals with this asset and what what is your future plan and do you want to build a portfolio and what's going on in your life that we need to be aware of and, so that we can help you accomplish your goals now how are you going to build these relationships if i'm going to grow my company i can't build those relationships all of those relationships myself i have to have a team around me that's willing to engage in a deeper level of service to our clients, and and so that kind of gets to the other part about my long-term strategy, which is really to build an amazing team. Um, and uh, you know, we're we're working on that. Uh, we just hired an HR consultant to help us with a number of different things inside uh, our company. Uh, we're being very very careful about re- recruiting, hiring, and training. Uh, we're hiring now. We're always hiring, we're always looking for great people. Um, you know, if, if any of our listeners are thinking about coming to Vancouver, Washington, and they're looking for a great company to be involved with that has full benefits, and a 401k, and an amazing future, and leadership opportunities, this would be the place to come.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you let a salesperson on your show. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I'd get that in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
0: you have a great audience, Jordan. Thanks for having me on.
1: <laughs> Love it.
0: Anyway, so in in terms of the longer term strategy, to get back to your question, it it's really to build a relationship business, to build, uh, and where's that going to go? I mean, is, it, is there are there going to be other dovetails to take us outside of property management? Very possibly. Uh, when you have the revenue to set aside or to enjoy or to invest in your company, you're just going to run into additional
1: opportunities and who knows what those will be in the future. I love it so there was a lot in there that really resonated with me the focus on customer let's start there so what does the customer relationship represent what could we what what's the juice that we could squeeze out of that piece of fruit I think there's quite a bit the first that I relate to is the joy and the energy that comes from actually caring when you are in relationship with people and it's a healthy relationship and you've set up the terms such that it's a healthy relationship work just simply becomes more fulfilling, right? We all know that. It, it's it's self evident. This is part of the challenge of managing lower income units, is that the relationship in large part becomes more like a prison guard and prisoner type relationship as opposed to two people that are actually trying to help each other. That's the lowest potential end. The highest potential end of the relationship looks more like acting as a fiduciary, a strategic right. advisor. Somebody that knows more than you and that you are leaning upon to help guide you towards a long-term ultimate outcome. So you always have to ask yourself, do I want to be focused on... The raw mechanics on functionality and have a transactional relationship, or do I want to be focused on the intangibles? Do I want to be focused on how the customer feels about me and my brand? Do I want to be a strategic advisor that's casting a vision that's leading and guiding this person? And that, as soft as it sounds, is really the intangible that is, in large part, determinative of a thousand other sub-decisions. You made that decision early on. Let's put some more meat on the bone. What does it look like to act like a strategic advisor for your clients? You mentioned the end state question. Can you put some more meat on that? Are we talking annual pro formas with investors to talk about their portfolio? What else do you do on a high touch level to really make them feel like that there's a journey happening here, not just dollar in dollar out service delivery?
0: One of the uh, initiatives that we're rolling out is for our more important clients, the ones that have multiple units, the ones that we think are growth-oriented, we're rolling out a summary report that we send every month that's going to have a lot of these metrics in them. We use AppFolio. You send the financial report out. If if a client has multiple multiple units, there's going to be pages and pages and pages to go through, and you know the there's just a few high touch points that they really would want to know. And in addition to that, to building and reinforcing the value that we're providing, uh, we're building a summary sheet that we're going to provide. Um, we've already started with a couple of clients, but we're still in the refining process. That we'll show them what the rent roll was the previous year, what the increases were. You know, a couple of the different high-level metrics that we use when we're pitching for a new client that we've learned through Zellman on their portfolio. In addition to that, uh, because I have a great team around me and I have more time available, my goal is to meet, and I already have with a number of our uh, high-level clients. You know, let's let's go out to lunch. Let's talk about. What it is, your objectives are, where you want to go from here, to have that R factor question with them, uh, because we weren't always smart about asking that in the beginning, and I think that's a, just a great way to add add value to the relationship. So having those conversations, having lots and lots of touch points with our portfolio managers between the owner client, we want to have probably uh, uh, on average. Um, uh, half a dozen or more additional touch points during a, the course of a year and that's presuming there's no turnover okay if there's a turnover we have to have lots and lots of, of touch points with a with the client to talk about what's going on what the marketing looks like uh, you know what we see going on in our market uh, you know I'm taking a, a page from your playbook Jordan uh, we're going to be starting our own local podcast and to do some different things here uh, in Vancouver, Washington, to establish ourselves more as a the, the local uh, expert in our market. I know the Dodson Property Management is doing this very effectively in Virginia. and Thank you for setting the model, uh, Duke. Uh, we'll go ahead and copy you. We're on the opposite side of the country, so it shouldn't bother you too much. Probably the other super important thing is just our team development. One of the things that I think is super important that a lot of property managers uh, struggle with, and I know in the beginning, we didn't think that we could really do it, and that was to recruit and hire the very, very best people, provide the training, compensate them well, coach them on a regular basis. Probably over 50% of my time now is spent really working on coaching our team and our team development. I don't have as much client-facing Uh, time as i've had in the past but uh i i want to be able to have the freedom uh to travel to take as many free days to take 150 free days a year away from the business and in order to be able to do that we have to have a team that can deliver that experience to our clients. I'm not sure if that's all of what you're looking for as far as putting some meat on the bones on that relationship. Yeah, no,
1: it it does. I mean, let's dive into team a little bit. Team is one of those areas of potential hesitation. If the consideration of the belief is that I need to find somebody as good or better than me, it's very high bar to set relative to the level of your preferences, context, et cetera. So when you think about replacing Uh, yourself in a certain role as you've thought about, as you've grown, what has been the threshold of expectation that you have placed upon somebody to really feel like you are getting an excellent person that you can really trust in that role as opposed to a lower wage labor that you're essentially having to actively manage?
0: I'll talk about our portfolio managers, our property managers, for for a little bit. Uh, One one of the things that we instituted here a couple of years ago was really making them participants in the financial success of their portfolios. So they have a stake in making the portfolio perform. Uh, They have a stake in keeping the clients happy. If the client's happy and they decide to sell, they're incentivized for that. We spend a lot of time and and we're developing right now a, a young lady, really young lady, very, very smart individual who really gets the, the business component of what property management is all about. Uh, so, people who are smart, people who are engaged, people who want to grow. We've had challenges trying to hire people who are inside the industry. We've had a lot of success going out in the market and finding people who may be in another service business uh, and bringing them in and training them from the front desk on back. And we've had a a number of really great success stories of people who've just been hired at entry-level positions that have uh, grown into significant contributors here on our team. The team training is really important. I'm very excited about uh, engaging in an HR professional. I'm kind of a hard guy sometimes. I'm very results- Oriented and I believe in accountability. And that kind of gives me a little harder edge than than I'm learning that I need to have. And that's been part of my development is the coaching that I've gotten through a strategic coach, the coaching that I'm getting from our HR professional, the kinds of things that I that I need to do. And quite frankly, on the hiring side, my wife actually has much better touch. She's made most of our best hiring decisions because she's a Consummate people person uh, worked in the recruiting industry in Southern California, so she really understands that component. But uh, is providing them the tools and the incentives and the FaceTime, the FaceTime, and then just being okay with letting them, uh, well, like Scott Fritz said in that one interview, you know, to do the eighty percent, to be able, you know, can I accept eighty percent as well as I would do it? And the reality is a lot of these people are much better than me. I mean, I'm not a very organized person. I'm not I'm not necessarily that great on follow-up. And you know, it's it's really delightful when you can see people grow into doing things in, in a way that is, is better than what you would have done. I love the
1: passion that you're sharing there about hiring and investing in your team. When we think about what sustainable career development looks like by hiring the best people, it's been said that you can hire someone, but if there's a really short ladder, it's going to directly correlate to the level of their aspiration. If there's only two rungs on the ladder. That's essentially the degree in which they are aware that they have to grow. So culture, a track of knowing that there is growth potential in the organization, not necessarily even laterally or vertically in terms of taking on a new job, but just knowing within your role that you will be nurtured, you will be encouraged to progress, makes a huge difference in the mindset of, of the expectations people bring to the role. I'd like to transition now to the Raptifier section of the interview. Normally, I have a list of questions that we cover. If you've heard the podcast before, you're probably familiar with those. But we are going to skip all of those in questions because instead, I'm going to leverage the fact that this is my podcast and I can talk about what personally interests me. And that is this, Denny. I want to talk a little bit about the car dealership business. Those of you listening at home have probably heard me say before, I have a fascination with adjacent industries that have similar dynamics, particularly around the sales process, meaning sales complexity, sales cycle, transaction size, etc. Real estate, independent insurance brokerages, car dealerships, all of these qualify. So I pay attention to what's going on in those other industries. Here we have a professional on the background. Somebody, somebody is on the phone. Somebody that has that experience. So, if you can give us a little bit of insight, what typically goes on at the dealership that people don't see? What's the back the background view that you'll never see going in as a consumer?
0: That's a good question. And again, I've been out of the industry for um, more than fifteen years. I don't Um, don't
1: imagine that much has changed any. (laughs) Well, I I think I think it has.
0: There there have been some changes. I think the sales process in the automobile industry has gotten softer. I think it's gotten more responsive to not softer in terms of being results driven, but softer in terms of the customer experience. Uh, I I, and it's needed to be. Uh, that's for sure. One of the behind the scenes thing is, is, you know, they're uh, uh, in the car business. They're they're looking to uh, make a sale as uh, as quickly as they can. Uh, so there is I mean, when you set foot in a, in a car dealership, you're there because you're interested in automobile. And the assumption is that you're there to buy. And that assumption is thoroughly exhausted. Through every avenue that they have until you decide to leave. So one of the things that was uh, that I learned right in the beginning of the car business this was back in 1978 was the whole was the whole turn concept. So if you somehow didn't get it on with a client in terms of building any kind of a rapport or a relationship, what you did is excuse me for a second. I got an idea. I'll be right back. And you'd go and grab the best guy on the floor who wasn't currently with a client and you'd say hey, let me introduce you to so and so he knows a lot more about this particular product or what you're asking about and by the way I got a phone call that, here's bob see you later okay and what what I learned really early on is that you just you're not going to hit it off with everybody and uh, personalities aren't aren't the aren't the same and sometimes and and I always it kind of made me mad cuz I was considered myself a really great salesperson when I would do a turn to another salesperson, and actually close the deal. It's like, dang, he was better than me. You know what happened there? I love to take turns myself and go ahead and close the sale where somebody else couldn't get the report going. So they're going to exhaust every single opportunity. A lot of times, you'll have an opportunity to meet the manager, and the manager, you know, will find out if the whatever the objection is, and be able to figure out if there's a way to to solve the objection of what what it is that's holding somebody up for making a buying decision. They're just really laser. Focused on the sales process. And I think in property management, you've talked about this in a number of your other podcasts, is developing a sales system in property management is a huge opportunity. And uh, we're, we're going to do a better job of that here. Uh, we're looking to get another business development manager and use Lead Simple in a better way and crank up some marketing to bring in more clients. Uh, but I think
1: building a sales process is really really critical so let's start here when they did turns Denny did the salesperson ever do a turn with one of the mechanics out in the shop did they ever bring one of the mechanics from outside to sell Denny
0: No, 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 no. You were looking for the best guy, the best guy. The the guy that was putting up the biggest numbers, the guy who just closed a deal, okay? The guy who
1: was riding the wave, the guy who was hot. That's who you were looking for. So, Denny, in your business, when an owner calls in, do you ever, if you're short-staffed, put them on the phone with um, one of your maintenance techs? No. (laughs) So... What, what can we infer from this? You know, it's a sales-focused business and they yes. make no bones about that. There's no confusion. In our business, we tend to think it's an operations-focused business. Well, that's what we do, right? What we do is property management, sales and marketing. It's kind of this nice-to-have bolt-on, wouldn't it be great if we could do that well? But in my mind, the first sign of real commitment to sales and marketing is to actually hire people that do that professionally. And that doesn't mean that they have to have this crazy expert voodoo sales factor that's unquantifiable, it could mean that it simply is a really great process that has been invested in and refined over time and has run over time. But the focus and job designation to me is, is huge. You mentioned uh, BDM, for example. What's your experience been like in, in cultivating BDMs? How long before you got to the point before you made the investment in that formal role?
0: Uh, we, we developed somebody uh, here about uh, three years ago, and she did a, a reasonably good job for us for a couple of years. She's no longer with us. We uh, freed up her future for a couple of reasons. And we have a, a, one of our real estate brokers who's currently doing the BDM function. And we've been interviewing hard for a business development manager. We use a number of different tests. We have, uh, we're very careful. One of the tools that we learned from Strategic Coach was the Colby Profile. And it has a lot to do with how people work. Uh, entrepreneurs tend to be really high on what they call quick start. Really effective salespeople tend to be really long on the quick start. They're willing to go out and meet people. So the qualifications, I mean, they don't necessarily have to come from a strong sales background. You know, I don't know that I would necessarily hire a car guy to be a business development person in our business, but they have to have that aptitude. They have to have that That willingness to go out and meet people, that willingness to face rejection, that willingness to engage in quite a lot of activity. And then they, of course, have to be a quality person. I mean, they have to have integrity and all those other things. But there are some definite qualifications to look for. And I think the really successful companies in our business that are going to experience a lot of growth will have multiple business development managers. And right now, I'd, I'd hire, uh, I'd hire two or three if if the right people showed up. The problem is we've just not been able to find the person that's the right fit. We have a long interview process and we're just pretty darn selective. So we're going to have to get build a marketing function for recruiting, to tell you the truth, uh, because that's really going to drive our business.
1: I love that. So you have the vision, you're progressively leaning into it, you've had a BDM, you will have another BDM in the future. I mean, the way I think about it is that Temperament aside, ultimately you have to have somebody that has the focus, the role, time, the accountability, which means that it needs to be their job. The property manager by nature is juggling a lot of different responsibilities, wearing hats, and to have anybody doing anything on a part-time basis is going to lead to a suboptimal outcome. So that's certainly is one takeaway is that the car dealership business is a sales business. The other half of the business, let's look at the metaphor between the initial sale versus finance and insurance versus management base fee versus ancillary fees. I'd love to get kind of your take on in the dealership business, what kind of financial contribution does the finance department make on the backside post-sale?
0: Well, it's gotten to be a higher and higher percentage over the years. And I don't know what it is now, having been out of the industry for a while. But when I left the industry, it it was a significant percentage. I don't want to say it was 50% of the sales revenue, but it's been growing. And I know that in the automobile industry, margins have continued to be squeezed. Uh, Manufacturers have done that with their dealer agreements in terms of the of the margin that that they're offering the dealer, and uh, these ancillary sales, if you will, are amounting to uh, a very significant percentage. I don't know today, but it could be fifty uh, percent or an excess of fifty percent. And you you've got maybe one or two F and I guys in a dealership, and you might have an army of twenty or thirty salespeople, and those two guys are making close to the same amount of money from the dealership as those other 20 or 30. You know there's just an example of of kind of an 80 20 90 10 kind of a dynamic that takes place in that industry.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, huge, huge relevant cross application here. None of the best practices, the principles, high level thinking we're talking about that's good for property management is good for property management in isolation. We're entrepreneurs, these are general business concepts and revenue maximization, ultimately it's it's that drives more oxygen that should hopefully affect your bottom line. So um, I love you kind of taking us through some of the background there. Let's close with this. I do ask each and every guest one question, Denny. You probably know it's coming, and that is this Denny, in your opinion, are entrepreneurs born or bred?
0: It has to be in your character to want to step into the risk zone. And I mean, I believe it can be developed in people over time, but I mean, to some extent, you're going to develop that. You're going to know that about yourself. It's going to be part of your unique ability, it's going to be part of how God created you to be willing to take those kinds of risks, to be willing to deal with that kind of adversity, to deal with that kind of rejection and uncertainty, and not everybody has it. I think it can be grown, I think it can be developed, but I do think that it's probably in your genes.
1: All right. So another one of the the few on the born side. There's arguments for both. I think I've made my leanings fairly clear. Denny, I appreciate you coming on this show. For folks that would like to learn more about Zenith and what you do, what's the best place for them to go?
0: Uh, best place to go would be to our website, which is zenithpro.com. Z e n i t h pro.com or you can get a hold of me at denny at zenithpro.com that's d-e-n-n-y at zenithpro.com i'd love uh, to network with all you closers out there and growers thanks jordan for the opportunity to be on your show you have a great show keep doing it man
1: all right hey it's a pleasure having you on next time you're in austin let's break bread all right you got it buddy Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.